This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our program is made possible with the support of our members and friends. If you'd like to make a donation or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that one can aid their own understanding of a Dharma talk, or Taisho, if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Nice to see you. Um, yeah, I mean, there's not much to tell. Korenji is a Rinzai Zen monastery in Wisconsin, and I, I serve as the abbot there. We have groups in the United States and Europe, but that's our center. And it's a full-time training monastery, uh, so we're doing a traditional monastic schedule there daily and annually. And it is also a center, as you mentioned, for uh, some other traditions or lineages of Japanese Buddhist practice. I'm also ordained in the Shugendo and also Tendai traditions. So we have, you know, we don't mix things together, but we have different streams of teaching and practice going on there. So it's quite a rich and very interesting place. Is that okay? That's an intro. <laughs> um, I was really happy to be asked to give a talk to you guys today. Um, Tishin and I uh, have never met in person, but we, I don't believe we have, but uh, we've had quite a bit of online contact, especially through a sort of informal teachers group that Dosho Port Roshi had organized some years ago, a good friend of mine. Uh, so I have always appreciated hearing about uh, you folks and what you're doing, uh, especially in North Carolina. Um, I don't know what I can talk about today that will be of much use to you. The first thing I want to say is that, um, you, know, you know, I'm not, I'm not in any particular special kind of a teacher or master or anything like that but what pleases me from the beginning is that you all already have a teacher uh, as Bodhidharma said in the bloodstream sermon only one in a million people can complete the path without the aid of a good spiritual friend a, a teacher of some kind and of course that's also stressed in the agamas and the early sutras by Shakyamuni so uh, you all guys already uh, are clear that you're not one of those one in the million. I am not. Most of us are not. Uh, if you spend much time in the torrid online world of Zen, or the torrid world of online Zen, I should say, <laughs> uh, there are many millions of people who seem to believe they are one in the million. Uh, those of us who are clear that we need to study with someone and that we need to receive that uh, stream of teaching and energetic transmission from a living human being or beings doesn't mean we only need to, we may only have one teacher in our lives. We have, we may have many, uh, but if we're clear about that, it means that we've already removed one of the big obstructions to practice. So that's, uh, you know, when I have contact with groups like yours that are doing a coherent path of practice under the guidance of someone qualified, uh, that's a very uh, wonderful, incredibly precious, almost uh, inconceivably precious thing. To have fallen into so that's a very wonderful thing to see i guess what i would talk about with anyone who's interested in zen practice are kind of three things um, i will not call this a teisho today in, in our usage of that word teisho is done face to face and it's particularly suited to the people who are there it's not an intellectual discussion um, it's a 
a manifestation or a, a display of realization that is meant to directly point out one's nature to the people listening. It's, it's a very direct uh, embodied kind of teaching. The most I could call this today is kind of a Dharma talk. So I hope that's okay for you. But in this kind of talk, what I would again stress for anyone are three things. Um, Zen as a practice path has a coherent structure, has coherent or, or, or defined, I should say, signs of fruition along the way that we should be aware of and that we can observe. Uh, it's been spelled out to us very kindly by the great masters of the past. Uh, so I like to speak to those things a little bit. The first point is that we have to uh, grasp that the beginning and the middle and the end of the Zen path for each of us is nothing more or less than bodhaishin or bodhicitta. The mind that gives rise to the profound and fervent aspiration for liberation, not just for oneself, but encompassing all others. That's what we call bodhaishin or bodhicitta. And all Mahayana traditions hold up bodhicitta, that's the Sanskrit word, as the gateway to the bodhisattva path. It's not nothing so mysterious. If you at some point recognize in a common sense manner, whether you call yourself Buddhist or not is not such a concern to me, but observing in a common sense way, some of the things that Shakyamuni pointed out to us, the fact that everything we can observe, including our own selves, so-called selves is transient, unstable, changing. That this existence we're experiencing is shot through with a kind of dis-ease, a certain amount of angst, a, a very fundamental or core uh, unsatisfactory quality. No matter what we may achieve or attain in life, that is the case, the truth of what we call dukkha. And that within all of that, good and bad, so-called uh, pleasure and pain, whatever we experience in our existence, we cannot find any real uh, I or me that we can pin down within any of that experience. So those are the you know, so-called three marks of existence, uh, transience, dukkha or suffering or disease and non-self. If we start to observe those things you know, within this very mysterious, strange life that seems to exist at this crux of what we call time and space, that some of those things are at play, that yes, everything does seem transient. There's nothing I can hold on to people, relationships, attainments, things. There's a certain amount of disease within it, angst, uh, unpleasantness, and so on. Even as much as I try to avoid that, I cannot. And finally, uh, within all of it, there's no stable, permanent me anywhere to be found. We can start to see those things, again, just in a common sense way, without having to... Uh, think of ourselves as somehow converting to any kind of ism or becoming Buddhists. These are just common sense observations. If we set aside belief or faith or assumption and just look at what we can see with our own eyes dispassionately, we can come to those same conclusions. We do come to those same conclusions. Okay, so that's the beginning of being the so-called Buddhist path is those realizations. What if with that, 
we recognize also that I am not the only one experiencing this kind of angst and dis-ease and suffering. But we see all the myriad beings, so you know, great and small, humans and otherwise, also going through that meat grinder <laughs> of existence. And we have even a glimmer of sympathy, empathy, desire to help for them. That is the moment we recognize the arising of bodhisattva or bodhicitta. That is the moment that in all the Buddhist texts is counted as the crucial moment, the moment of radical change in direction, the moment at which your existence is no longer a common existence, uh, no longer a common sentient being's direction or path. At that moment, you yourself become the bodhisattva. You have entered the bodhisattva path. Fledgling bodhisattva, of course, we have a lot to do. But that is the moment of, uh, I cannot understate, I cannot overstate rather, uh, how radical a change in direction that is counted to be. That's the arising of bodhicitta or bodhaishin. So we can go back to that again and again. I said that that arising of bodhaishin, the aspiration to liberate self and others, is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the path. Uh, it means that we take it as the foundation, the basis, through the entire path of practice. Tore, who's a great, uh, one of the great Rinzai masters, greatest of the Rinzai masters, one of the great disciples of Hakuin, very famous Rinzai master, uh, said it this way, throughout your whole path of training, if you find that you are of, I'm paraphrasing, but this is more or less what he said, of high capacity, go back to the four vows, the four vows of the Bodhisattva and contemplate them. If you find you're of low capacity, go back to the four vows and contemplate them. If you find you're intelligent, go back to the four vows. If you find you're not so intelligent, go back to the four vows. If you have a clear seeing of your own nature, that gate of awakening we call Kensho or Satori, which is the, is the gateway and the foundation, the basis of the whole Zen path, go back to the four vows if that seeing becomes clear. If it's not so clear and you haven't yet arrived at that, go back to the four vows. If you penetrate the path deeply and gain the unlimited skillful means to aid all beings. Go back to the four vows. If you find yourself beset with obstructions, obstacles, delusion, ignorance, go back to the four vows. Torre says, from the very beginning of the path to the very end, the accomplishment or attainment of supreme Buddhahood, we take the four vows, bodhisattva vows, first one being the vow to liberate all beings, as our basis. And if we do that, he says, contemplating them day by day, reciting them with the mouth, uh, uh, digesting them with the whole body and mind. Then just as a person who walking through fog slowly without knowing becomes drenched, or just like a robe or a garment which is hung in a room where incense is burning, slowly without knowing or without intending to takes on that wondrous scent and is completely permeated with it. So we, through constant contemplation and returning to the four vows, will become permeated with this bodhisattva, this aspiration. 
the rising of this great compassion is not the beginning of the Zen path. As I said, it's the beginning, the middle, and the end. So that's the first point I always like to make. And I, I think it is standard Mahayana teaching, but it's something uh, I think sometimes Zen folks need to be reminded. I've heard some Zen people say that they felt like Zen lacked compassion practices, which is ridiculous. We have many such things. <laughs> but any Zen text, any uh, Mahayana Sutra, anything that you can read written by the great masters of any of the Zen lineages in the past, go back again and again to the, the importance of this point that the path is not for ourselves alone. It encompasses all beings. We know this intellectually, but I'm, uh, again, it, it bears constant, constant repeating and not just again in a intellectual manner, but a kind of deep digesting or contemplating of these vows. What are these four vows that we chant constantly to liberate all beings, to cut off our endless delusion, to master all the gates of the Dharma, to attain the supreme awakening? You cannot go wrong. <laughs> you cannot deviate from the path too far at all if you return again and again to this simple, profound teaching of the four vows. If I were to say nothing else, if, if anyone were to say nothing else to you, that would be a sufficient Dharma talk right there. That would be a sufficient material for your whole practice life, for your whole life, honestly. But that's the first thing I like to talk about. The second point, as we talk about the Zen path having kind of a coherent structure, signs of fruition or, or uh, you know, it, it has a map. Uh, we should always return to Bodhidharma's uh, phrases, four phrases which express the intent and the method of the Zen school. Okay, so the four vows are the first thing we should always return to. Second thing, we should return to Bodhidharma's four lines or four phrases. First one being that Zen is the separate transmission outside the scriptures. Uh, second, uh, it's not dependent upon or not setting up words and letters. Third, uh, it is directly pointing at the mind. And fourth, seeing one's nature becoming Buddha. This is Bodhidharma's description, attributed to Bodhidharma at least, of what Zen is, its actual intent and its actual method. We should digest those words a little bit too. Uh, separate transmission outside the scriptures, not dependent upon words and letters. Well, we can take this to mean that Zen is, again, not primarily an intellectual tradition, that's certainly true, it's an experiential tradition. Um, it's not a tradition where we pick up the sutras and the writing, great Zen writings and use them to try to arrive at some realization, although that is possible if one is ripe and the conditions are correct. Rather than that, we try to have the experience, uh, experiential realization first, and then with that as the basis, we will understand where those writings and scriptures came from. Yeah, that is the Zen approach, it's true. It's an experiential tradition. It's not an intellectual one or an academic one. But more profoundly, those first two lines uh, reveal something which I've touched upon briefly already. The fact that if Zen is not primarily a textual tradition or resting upon writings, what is it resting upon? It's writing, uh, resting completely upon that student-teacher relationship. 
the transmission of the life blood of the Zen way is not through texts primarily. It's through relationship, human contact. Within human relationship, it is actualized and brought to fruition. Zen is a tradition in which the student-teacher relationship is so important and so key. It's only within such human contact that this process we call Ishin Denshin, the trans so-called transmission of mind-to-mind, -mind happens. Mind-to-mind uh, -mind doesn't mean something is somehow transmitted like radio waves from one person to another. It's not a psychic undertaking. <laughs> but it means that in the contact between two human beings who are mutually exploring the Dharma, there's a resonance. There's a, a kind of vibration which is caught from one to another. And it means that generation to generation to generation, the student can catch and experience and know the state, the mind of the teacher. And this process, again, which takes place within the human contact or human encounter is the basis of Zen rather than texts. That's what those two lines from, initial lines from Bodhidharma remind us that importance of uh, realizing Zen within human relationship. Of course, that also encompasses relationship with our peers, with the Sangha, the teacher and the community, uh, the realm of communal practice, practice between living bodies is really the Zen way. And it's, it's, it's what marks Zen in a very distinctive manner. So it's very important to understand. We talk a lot about so-called Zen lineage. You know, what is this person's lineage? Who were their Dharma ancestors and so on? We chant lineage constantly. <clears throat> we, we give great importance to those things. Is this lineage legitimate or not? And so on, that kind of stuff. But it's important to remember, Bodhidharma's words remind us that lineage actually doesn't exist at all. It's just a word. What we call lineage only exists in the living human bodies that are present right now. You can face your teacher, talk to your teacher, encounter your teacher, and think, oh, this person's master was this person, this, that person's master was this person going back through history. They're dead. They're not present. They're gone. The lineage only exists within that living person in front of you, and you, in that encounter, become forged onto that as the next link. There is no Zen at all outside of living human bodies. It's just an idea otherwise. So that is a very profound point. It, it, you know, it points out to us not only what we have to do if we want to study Zen, we need to find a good guide and we need to encounter that person and we need to receive the, the lineage blessing or transmission from that person through human contact. Uh, but it also points out to us what Zen really is, where it exists. And we can let go a little bit of some of the ideas we have of lineage and history and so on uh, by remembering that actually Zen is only this body. These human bodies encountering one another is the only place Zen exists at all. Not in the texts, not in lineage charts, uh, only in our own activity with each other. So those are the first two lines from Bodhidharma, uh, which reveal sort of the approach of Zen 
a non-textual, non-academic, non-intellectual approach, experiential approach, actualized, brought to fruition within human content. The third line, direct pointing at the human mind, now starts to reveal the actual method of Zen. Direct pointing at the human mind can be taken as just a general description of Zen, a descriptor, uh, you know, a description of, um, you know, how direct and powerful Zen is. It directly points out your mind to you. But it's more than that. What it's actually referring to, that line, direct pointing at the human mind, is the activity of the teacher. This activity we call direct pointing in Zen, meaning all of the various skillful methods and means by which the Zen teacher causes the student to arrive at the gate of awakening. If you read uh, old koan or Zen texts, of course, you're very familiar with kinds of anecdotes where student yelled or hit with a stick or did some kind of action or said some kind of word, uh, gave a shout, uh, you know, many kinds of unusual, sometimes seemingly crazy actions of Zen teachers, which caused the student to have an insight. We have to understand that that activity, what we call direct pointing, is a skillful means. It's, it's a manner of teaching that is distinctive in Zen, using body, speech, and mind in creative ways with the state of meditative absorption, what we call samadhi, as the basis of it, both within the teacher and the student, to cause the student to have a sudden turning around of the light of awareness and arrival at this crucial gate we call satori or kensho or awakening. Zen is the tradition where the teacher's use of such methods can be called wondrous, uh, inconceivable within the state of meditative absorption, giving rise to a seamless upwelling of that liberative wisdom that we first realize with awakening, the teacher is creating a certain condition or uh, environment around him or herself. And then when there is the encounter with the student, if the student also is ripe and has also cultivated correctly, is in that correct state, then those kinds of means, a yell, a hit with a stick, a single penetrating word, even a glance, even just the atmosphere itself can cause the student to suddenly break through the wall of habitual delusion and arrive at awakening. This is a very distinctive, uh, uh, very, uh, I should say, hallmark approach of the Zen tradition, what we call direct pointing at the mind. So again, I want to stress, it's not simply a description of Zen, it's talking about an activity within Zen, primarily the activity of the teacher to bring the student to awakening. We have to recognize that. And we should understand that, I, I could say, at least from the Rinzai Zen standpoint, what is considered the main or the central, the one indispensable practice of Zen is not Zazen. It's surprising to some people to hear that. Of course, we do a lot of zazen. Everyone, everyone has to do a lot of zazen. You don't get to escape that. But the one indispensable practice is what we call sanzen. Zazen is seated meditation. Sanzen means going to or visiting for zen. Sanzen is that encounter with the teacher. In, within the sort of liminal space of the so-called doksan room, 
uh, the, the, the place where the student and the teacher meet formally, not as two human beings with foibles and personalities and, and so on. Of course, we all have those things, but as two sentient beings mutually penetrating, mutually exploring the Dharma, polishing each other through that human encounter. Within Sanzen is where these sort of wondrous, skillful means that we call direct pointing happen. So that's a Bodhidharma telling us what is the method of Zen. The, again, inconceivably uh, remarkable, skillful means of direct pointing within the container of the training by means of which the teacher can cause the student to arrive at awakening. And then when that is successful, when that does happen, what then? What's the fruition of the result? And that's the final line. Seeing one's nature, becoming Buddha. Seeing one's nature, of course, is that, uh, I don't like the word experience, but we can use this word experience, uh, that we call kensho or satori, to recognize that one's own nature, to see clearly, to know for oneself that what we call Buddha is precisely this nature, what's present and has never been lacking. And of course, that is not the end of the path at all. That's only the entrance. That's only the gate. It's the moment at which we can say, I'm not doing only Buddhist practice, now I'm doing Zen practice. Because that liberative knowledge, that knowing, which arises with awakening, becomes the basis for the entire subsequent path for one's whole life. The path of becoming Buddha is nothing but returning again and again to that, clarifying it, deepening it, integrating it, bringing all the activities of body, speech, and mind into accord with it until ultimately we are in a state where we have a non-departure from it seamlessly within the unified state, as the sixth patriarch said, of samadhi, meditative absorption, and prajna, wisdom, unified in a seamless upwelling, eventually, eventually, 24-7. And that is the state, nothing less than that is the state we call becoming Buddha. So that's the second thing I would encourage all students to return to again and again, these four lines from Bodhidharma. Uh, first two ones, again, affirming what the kind of unique approach of the Zen school is, not resting on text, but resting on human relationship. The lifeblood of it is an encounter with others. And the third line, direct pointing at the human mind, now is revealing the method, the skillful means used by the teacher within that relationship. And then finally, seeing one's nature becoming Buddha. Those, those are the fruitions we can look forward to, to know what my nature is. Nature is not a thing, of course. Nature of water, we can say, is wetness or fluidity. These are not things. They are describing its qualities, <laughs> its nature. And my own nature, the qualities which are intrinsic, to all of us, are so boundless, so uh, unlimited in a manner beyond what we can comprehend. When we arrive at that experiential knowledge for ourselves, then we can enter, finally, for real, the path of becoming Buddha. Then all of life becomes our dojo, our training hall, or our zendo. All activities become dharma activities. All sounds become mantra. All sights become Buddha images. We inhabit that world of endless, wondrous practice and deepening. That's what the Zen promises to us.
I know I'm throwing a lot at you. I, we have a, it's a short talk today, so this is a dense, short but dense talk. I hope you get something from it. <laughs> I'll leave. A, I like to leave a few moments at the end, also just for some discussion, or if you have some questions or something. Uh, the finally, the third thing I would stress to all Zen students. Now, indulge me with a little bit of history or talk, allow me to talk a little bit about history here. When we look at the religious situation in ancient India, where Buddhism arose, there, we can see then two main streams of spirituality. Uh, one, what's called the Vedic, which rests very strongly on the Vedas, the, the texts which were brought into India by those people and, and still form the basis today for what we call now call Hinduism. Uh, although Hinduism didn't exist at that time, uh, as it developed, it still takes those texts as a very important basis. And then we also have the second stream, which is called the Shramanic, the Shramana uh, movement. These were people who were doing what we can call yogic spirituality rather than intellectual spirituality, rather than texts, ritual, uh, um, you know, uh, sacrifice and, and, and the ritual practices, magical practices and so on. These were people who were primarily concerned with how to use this embodied existence, not just the mind, but the body, the mind, the breath, the senses, the subtle energetics of the body. These were people who were cultivating methods, harnessing the whole human being. Again, what we can call yogic approach to spirituality, which is quite different from an intellectual or conceptual approach or a faith-based approach. It's an approach of the flesh. It's an approach that views the body as the vehicle of liberation, that views this body-mind as precisely the place where Buddha is realized. Uh, that was the shamanic approach. And that's the approach that Buddhism arose out of. Buddhism is not the only religious uh, tradition that comes out from that, but the, most, the one that spread most strongly worldwide, and of course, we've inherited it today. Okay, so that's a history lesson, religious studies nerd talk. What it means is we cannot forget that our approach is fundamentally a psychophysical approach, not just psychological. It's an embodied spirituality. That word embodies has become a hip catchphrase, but we have to understand practically what it really means. Is, are we doing a truly embodied practice? We have to constantly examine ourselves. Am I using... This whole human being within the path of Zen practice, which is meant to do so. Am I not only cultivating a posture, am I cultivating the breath, which is the, the wondrous functioning of our bodies, which links body and mind and has such a profound effect on the condition of my experience? And have I learned how to use the senses correctly? A small change in the way we use the eyes during zazen, for example, allows us to enter samadhi, the state of meditative absorption, or prevents it. This kind of very detailed instruction regarding how to use this this container, <laughs> this, this body-mind, we don't even separate body and mind, we hyphenate them, this, this whole existence. Uh, that is the approach of Buddhist practice in general, and it's the approach which Zen in particular, as a practice-oriented school, stands upon. This very body is the vehicle of your liberation. Zen is an embodied practice. Zen is a yogic spirituality. It's a psychophysical rather than psychological. And these are the kinds of things we have to keep reminding ourselves about. 
I think there's, especially in the West, there's been some sort of a movement of conflating uh, Dharma practice with things like, uh, you know, psychotherapy or psychological theory and so on. Uh, we have to be cautious not to start to see or view the revolution that comes from Zen practice as primarily a psychological one. It is not, it's psychophysical. If we cultivate the Zen path, we attain or arrive at that clear awakening and take that as the basis of the subsequent lifelong path of liberation, which we call becoming Buddha, we will see transformation, we will experience it not only in the mind, but in the body itself, we can see in the posture and the manner of breathing and the manner of using the eyes, if someone has arrived deeply at that kind of experience. It transforms the whole human being because the whole human being must be harnessed and used in this embodied path of spirituality, the yogic path of Buddha Dharma. We will see transformation in the whole being doesn't mean you'll become better looking, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> doesn't mean yeah, Dharma practice will suddenly resolve all your physical issues. No. But what I'm saying is we harness the whole being in it. Therefore, the whole being is involved in it. And we will see transformation in the functioning of the whole body-mind. Why this is so important is because it's the reason Zen is so powerful and direct. Zen is one of the paths of Buddha Dharma, which is said to not require endless lifetimes, lifetime after lifetime of practice, but you can penetrate into the essential meaning of the Buddhist teaching and arrive at the fruition of awakening, even arrive at the fruition of complete liberation in one lifetime, in this very body, if your practice is sufficiently profound, deep and extensive. Right now, here in this life, we can cut the chain of habitual delusion forever. Zen is one of the few Buddhist traditions which says that's possible. The reason it is said to be possible is because we, again, are not a tradition that is primarily here. We're using all of this, the whole body-mind, in, in a, a bold, decisive, uh, very direct approach to penetrate through our habitual ignorance and arrive at, again, the clear seeing of our own nature. So this third point simply means uh, I would advise all Zen students to pay close attention to the details of practice. As Tore, the great master I mentioned earlier said, um, Zen way is not particularly difficult, but it requires that we pay close attention to the details. It requires that we uh, really digest the oral instruction about practice. Why are we sitting in a zazen posture? Why is that yogic asana, that yogic posture so important? We have to start to understand why. Of course, we can sit in a chair if we cannot sit in full lotus, no problem, or half lotus or cross-legged. But why are the traditional postures, or what are their benefits? Why are they useful? And if we can't use them, how do we get those same qualities when we're sitting in a chair? What are those qualities? What is it? that the posture is meant to accomplish. It's more than just sitting still. What is the manner of breathing? It's most conducive in this yogic path to entering the state of meditative absorption within which my habitual delusion is less binding and taking that as the field of my practice. We have extensive oral instruction about those kinds of things. In Rinzai Zen, for example, 
Uh, we teach first what we call shikikoku, which is belly breathing, as the foundation of Zen training. And then eventually the student will learn a more cultivated type of breathing called tanden soku. It's the breath method centered on the navel, so-called energetic center. What is the purpose of that? Why is that so important? What are the effects when one starts to master that method of breathing? Basically, it allows us to enter the state of meditative absorption, which is uh, much more profound and subtle than we might otherwise be able to do. We have so much instruction about how to use this, this transient five foot, 10 inch, uh, <laughs> some, some quite annoying often thing we call a body because it's, it's the incredible vehicle and gift that we have, having encountered the Dharma, to have a body of reasonable integrity and health to pursue the training, pursue the practice, is so rare, so precious. We should know how to use it. So that's my encouragement, the third and final point. Never forget the Zen is an embodied path, psychophysical, not psychological, or not only, not solely psychological. And that every activity of the body can be harnessed and used within practice. We have incredible oral instruction passed down in Zen lineages about how to do this. 90% of what's important in Zen practice will you cannot find in texts anyway. It's received through oral instruction passed down through the generations from your teacher to teacher to teacher to teacher. Did you know, for example, that when you sneeze, there's a moment of natural clarity that we can learn to catch and sustain. There is instruction or training about how to practice at the moment you're falling asleep because there's an unparalleled opportunity that we usually pass right through into unconsciousness. But there's a moment right before we fall asleep when the body relaxes that we are able to enter into profound samadhi. And practitioners can learn to, to use that. It means eventually you can permeate sleep even the dream state with practice. We have instruction for those kinds of things. Not to sound, not to talk about impure, unsavory things or unpleasant things, but when you take a piss at the moment you release the stream of urine, there's a moment where the conceptual, usual uh, conceptual uh, proliferation, or, or I should say the discursive chatter for an instant stops. That simple action or function of the physical body causes that effect in the mind. As practitioners, we can recognize that, we can learn to recognize that and catch it and use it. It means every time you take a piss, which you do, I hope you do sufficiently throughout the day, you have a chance to enter into a state of your own intrinsic clarity. This is a yogic spirituality. Maybe you're catching what I mean by that now. We're using all of this stuff to accomplish the path in a much more direct uh, a very practical, physical, embodied way than if we were just studying Buddhist teachings in books and trying to absorb the meaning intellectually. Zen is such a rich tradition with so many skillful means and methods to be used by teachers, to be used by students within human encounter, within this human body. So amazing, so remarkable. So again, that's... Going back to my first point, all of you having entered that path and having found a good teacher, I have the chance to inherit that kind of stuff. Inherit means to bring it to fruition, to use it, to experience it in your own bodies. That's an incredible, incredible thing. So let me sum up this rather dense talk. 
take the four vows as your foundation, beginning, middle, and end, and return again and again to digest them, almost like a koan. Sit with them. We say kufu. Kufu means to grapple with, non-intellectually, non but physically, in an embodied way, with the breath, with the body. Return again and again to the four vows. What does it mean that I've vowed to liberate all beings? How do I practically, not intellectually, but practically in my daily realm, my daily activities, encompass other beings in my practice? How do I not turn my back on them? As Tori said, if we take those as the foundation, we can never go wrong. No matter what happens in our practice, return to the four vows. That's the first thing. Second thing is those four lines of Bodhidharma describing the sort of intent and the actual method of Zen. Check those out, digest those, see how they're reflected in your own training. They will reveal to you, uh, again, you know, there's a lot of oral instruction that goes with them, but they will reveal to you not only what you're doing, but also what you're lacking, each of us. Uh, what are our blind spots? What have I not yet penetrated? What's not yet clear to me? You can always take those four lines as a kind of a, a very broad general map. There's a lot of detail in the map that they don't contain, but they point the details out. It will be very useful for you. And then finally, please don't think that Zen happens here. You can sit for 20 years in Zazen with perfect posture. And if your meditation is here only, you will not progress. But if you can grasp what is meant by the fact of Buddhism, including Zen, being a yogic or embodied or psychophysical path, and that precisely from that comes its power, its almost shocking power to sever the roots of our delusion, then you'll be able to use this training. You'll know what Zazen is for. You'll know what we can learn from hitting the bell or striking the mokugyo, uh, what samu work practice is for, all of the different forms that our training takes, sitting, chanting, or reciting mantra, doing physical work, art practice, anything you may do that you integrate into your Zen path. There's nothing you can't integrate, to be honest. You'll know how using this, this vehicle, fragile, transient, often uncomfortable vehicle of flesh and bone, uh, you will be able to accomplish the Zen path. And you will know that the old Zen saying that uh, enlightenment or realization must penetrate the bones it's not a poetic saying, it's literal. The transformation that happens in the body, the liberation of the body in the Zen path is the remarkable hallmark of our tradition. Be embodied practitioners. And then Zen in the West has a good future if we have some of some folks who are doing that. Okay, I talk enough at you. I never prepare talks ahead of time. I just kind of speak extemporaneously. Uh, I hope something was interesting or useful for you. And uh, I know, I, I don't know a whole lot about the practice you guys do, but I know that it has influence from both Soto Rinzai school. So it could be a good deal of what I've said coming from kind of a only a, or, you know, a solely from a Rinzai standpoint, probably some of it quite familiar to you. But again, I hope it's useful.